the Bright Counter Podcast. My name is Kevin Vinyaz, and today we are talking about products liability with the Jeffrey Bright. Jeffrey, why don't you introduce yourself? Good to see you, Kevin. As you know, my name is Jeffrey. <laughs> Happy to be here. So the goal of today's conversation is to use your experience over the last 42 years to uh, help shine a light or to help explain what products liability is. You know, most of our clients, as you know, come in and they don't know that aspect of the law or the what that even means or what it entails, but you have had many different experiences in that area of law. And so my goal is to ask you some questions about your experiences and hope that we can sort of tease out um, some facts that clients, other lawyers, and other people can learn from your experiences. Happy to be here. Happy to answer any questions you have. What maybe the basic way is how would you define a product's liability case or how does that differ from any other personal injury case our firm or other firms handle? Well, typically you're looking at individual negligence cases where an individual does something wrong that causes somebody else a harm. In a product's case, you're looking at an actual product, a pen, a bicycle, a crane, a screwdriver, a car. Those things fail because of design defects, because of manufacturing defects, or because of some other cause, and it causes somebody harm. Typically, products cases are very, very large. When you say very, very large, does that mean very large in the number of people, very large in the single case? What do you mean by very large? Bad injuries. Uh, Products liability cases for lawyers are very, very expensive, very expert-intensive. You have to hire engineers. You have to hire people who charge a lot of money to analyze and then make determinations. Many times you'll go down a products liability road thinking you have a good case and the engineers will tell you that there was no other available design that would have fixed this problem and you spent $25,000 and there's no case. Uh, Products liability cases are expensive and therefore the injuries before you'll take one of those cases have to be large enough to justify an expenditure of Fifty to one hundred thousand dollars, typical expenditure on a products liability case, and that's a typical expenditure on a single person who's injured. Single person, single injury. Uh, how about? I mean, you've had experiences with, I don't want to call them mass injury, but multiple uh, people or entities that are harmed by a series of products or a product that was has been manufactured over decades. Chinese drywall, for example. How does that change the calculus? Well, first of all, you have to do an individual product analysis. So if you have, like Chinese drywall, 3,000 homes with a defect, you have to first prove what is the defect. So every home has to identify that they have the defective product in their wall in Chinese drywall sense. You don't get to say, we think we all have this. You have to actually prove it. So experts have to go in. uh, Different types of experts go in and say, okay, you have the defective drywall. Now, is there a defect in this drywall? Uh, Chinese drywall, there were millions and millions of dollars spent proving that the Chinese drywall was defective. And you can only justify that when there are lots of clients who have been injured. And what is the term defective, I think, is sort of standard, but what does it mean? What does it mean in this context? It means different things in different contexts. In Chinese drywall... The drywall did what it was intended to be used for. It was a wall put into a home. 
what they did that was wrong is they didn't test the wall product as it came out of the mine in China. And they used a type of material that was very, very heavy in sulfur. And when they grind up the product, the rock, cook it, build it into wall and send the wall to the United States, that particular sulfurized product, when put under moisture and heat, would start to dissolve and let out a methane gas that would literally eat your home apart. So that was defect in that they didn't test what components they used. You'll have a bicycle where they have a seat, where they didn't test the seat bracket so that a person that's 150 pounds instead of 80 pounds gets on a seat and the seat snaps and pierces someone uh, and causes severe injury. Uh, automobiles where they have airbags that have either too intense an airbag where the explosion of the bag is too high because they were trying to get points for safety when in fact they were causing more harm than they should have, or airbags that are made with shrapnel that explode and cause injury. Uh, we've had guns that have been defective, defective uh, handles, defective triggers. We've had uh, grenade launchers that have exploded inside the particular device where the grenade went off. Uh, every product has a different type of difficulty in trying to prove. The military products are the hardest to prove because oftentimes they've disappeared. And that proving the defective product is almost contextual, right? I mean, you have to, like you said, the Chinese drywall, the wall did what they wanted it to do. It was a wall or the airbag does what they wanted it to do. It deployed when there was an impact. But there's the second part of that, which is what's the harm or what's the byproduct of this product? Is that a fair? Well, that takes a little bit more into the warning side of a case. In the airbags, they were obviously over-energized. And by over-energizing, they thought they would increase their safety uh, NHTSA reviews. And in fact, what they were doing was sending a Mike Tyson fist into people's faces and oftentimes they would cause horrible injuries to the face. Many people died from the shrapnel Takata airbags uh, because of the way it was built. The explosion would uh, dissolve the metal and send it out like shrapnel and destroy people's faces and eyes and kill them. The BP oil spill case, you spent years, years of your life in New Orleans, and that had multiple, I guess, components, moving parts to it. How did that case compare, or or was it a products liability case, or how was it different? It was really a a process safety case that had some defective products. So BP, which was in charge of the well, and in charge of everything happening at the well— change the process of drilling a hole very, very deep, a mile and a half down in the ocean, and then a mile below the Earth's crust in the ocean. Very, very dangerous, very, very complicated, and safety is always the primary concern when you are trying to reach the oil. And you have to go through miles of crust to find a big bathtub full of oil that justifies spending a hundred million dollars for an oil company to find oil worth more than a hundred million dollars. 
the farther you go down the earth, the more intense the pressure is. And as you drill a hole, you drop pipe, and each pipe has to be cemented in place. And what happened in that case was that BP, with lots and lots of warnings over the 60 days prior to the final explosion on April 10th, 2010, had warnings that this well wasn't going to work. And they had so much money invested that they decided that they would just continue on and see if they could get to the end. A good oil company would have said, this is a bad well. We just have to take our losses and move on. They kept on going forward. They were changing their plans, literally changed their plans every day in the last three days before the explosion. And then Halliburton, which was the contractor that was responsible for cementing in the pipe, did not use proper cement. Very complicated chemistry as you get deeper and deeper into the earth with the temperatures and the pressures. And they told BP that the cement was good and the cement was not good. The well collapsed. And then as the oil came rushing through the pipe that was still there, there is a BOP, which is a, it's a three-story mechanical device intended to stop an explosion of oil. The pressure and the heat was so much that that failed. And once that failed, the oil was rushing to the surface a mile, and each half hundred yards, it got faster and faster and faster. And when it finally came up to the oil well, they didn't even know it, but all of the people that were dead were going to die within 30 minutes, and there was nothing they could do about it because BP had not done what was proper to understand the nature of what was going on at the moment of the explosion. They had turned off alarms because the alarms were going off because of methane gas, and people were not able to sleep. The methane gas would have been the first warning that we have gas coming up, what's happening here, and they could have shut the well before the explosion, and they just didn't do it. They had pressure monitors, graphs in a room, people watching them, and they were out of control. But people kept on saying, ah, oh, it can't be that, it must be something else, instead of realizing, yes, the well is failing. And they lost the critical time period of 30 minutes where they could have shut the well down, saved the entire world from the biggest environmental disaster in history. But they failed to do it. Uh, Transoceans, which ran the well itself, the employees were under the direction of BP. Uh, one of the critical moments in the case was a fight between the two rig directors. Let's shut the well off. Let's shut the well off. Let's cut the top pipe. And they didn't have the proper authority, and they couldn't find the person who did. Mm. That's how you end up with the largest environmental disaster in history. So when you, it sounds like you led into it by saying that there are system process failures sort of layered on top of product failures. When you all approach that case to prove what happened, what is the different approach that the lawyers use, if, if any, improving the system or process defects or failures? Well, you have process safety. Products, yeah. You have process safety experts. Yeah. Uh, NASA uses process safety experts. Uh, The Navy uses them for all of their vessels. Bomb makers use process safety. So you understand the ramifications of any change in a product. In this case, there was changes in the drilling that was being done. 
and safety precautions that would have been in place that would have protected the disaster were removed for uh, expediency purposes. Let's get this done faster. We're losing money. Let's put that little safety device aside and we won't have to worry about it. The cement that failed, they could have waited 24 hours and that cement likely would have hardened to the point that the well would not have collapsed. But they were in a hurry. The original well that was being drilled was being drilled by a different oil rig. The oil rig suffered damage during a hurricane and they had to remove it and bring in the Deepwater Horizon. So they lost two and a half months. A drill rig cost a million dollars a day to rent. To rent. So BP was paying Transocean $1 million a day to borrow their rig to drill this hole. And they were 60 days, 90 days behind schedule by the time they got to April. And nobody wanted another delay. I don't know if you've read about the Challenger explosion uh, and the person who blew the whistle on what was going on before the Challenger explosion just died this week. That was a products case. The rings that were protecting the leaking of gas could not operate in low temperatures. The lawyers, and I know these lawyers, who got involved in litigation after the Challenger exploded, were able to show that under temperatures below 40 degrees, these O-rings would harden and then allow gas to escape under intense pressure and heat, which, of course, the launch is nothing but intense pressure Mm -hmm. and heat. There was an engineer who said we had a problem with these O-rings at 50 degrees. And he told NASA and he told the manufacturer who made the rings, this um, launch has to stop. And he told them on the morning of the launch, we cannot do this launch. What people forget was the political pressures was that the president was giving a speech that night and the president was going to talk about the great success of the Challenger. And so the White House was putting pressure on NASA, which was putting pressure on the engineers and the engineers wouldn't budge. So NASA then told the executives of the company, you won't get any more business from NASA if you don't launch. So they sent the paper down to Florida to engineer to sign off, and he said, I will never sign this document. Ninety minutes later, everyone was dead, and he was right. NASA tried to cover up that explosion defect, and he stood up in the hearing in the back of the room and raised his hand and said, what they're telling you is not true. They cleared the room. He came forward, and he said, this is what I told them, and here's my email telling them it. Stop the launch. So that's what happens in many products cases. Companies try to save money. They put safety aside. Money can generate a lot of different changes in the design. Some of the worst cases that we've seen is their $5 safety device would have stopped an explosion. We finished a heater case here, a heater that burned an entire house down in Virginia Beach. And it was just a heater for the house. Uh, But it had a shutoff device. It was made out of tin. It was a three-cent piece of tin 
that was the critical device to stop a heater from overheating. They could have spent 10 cents, 10 cents, and the fire would not have happened. When you add 10 cents or seven cents difference to thousands and thousands of heaters, somebody makes a conscious decision to cut safety and save money. You bringing up the, the Challenger case and the BP case um, sort of highlights something that I think I've observed in your career handling products cases, which is that um, oftentimes or sometimes the defective product is something within somebody's work environment. They're at work dealing with- It's an with industrial it. problem that happens in many industrial situations. And, and sometimes you've, I'm sure, faced this talking to other lawyers or talking to people that they don't see that potential option or avenue of recovery because it's at the workplace. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, lots of lawyers will say this is a workers' comp case. Uh, the person's getting workers' comp. There's probably not a product defect. Interesting, over the last decade, the insurance companies that have been paying the workers' comp, and sometimes millions of dollars of workers' comp, health bills, lifelong care, they say, wait a minute, how did this happen? Why is this injured worker injured? What was he doing? Uh, it happens a lot with drilling equipment. It has a lot with uh, heavy machinery that has lots of moving parts. And people don't realize that those parts could have safety devices, simple safety devices, if they would just incorporate them in the design. And so that's why the safety engineering is so important in all these products cases, because when you go back and look at the product from its inception, someone put safety aside because we can make 100,000 more of them and it's going to cost us X dollars more. Uh, biggest, uh, two big uh, product cases, one involving a parking meter, three-wheel device where you see parking meter people drive around. And they had put a simple cap on the top of the gas tank that you just twisted uh, 90 degrees and it did what it was supposed to do to stop the fuel. Well, they're on the streets, just like all the other automobiles. And it fell over because of a design that was too narrow. And you got to have a wide base. That's why you have all these uh, rollovers of recreational vehicles because they are not wide enough. Mm -hmm. The center of gravity like is too ATVs, high. ATVs, like center of gravity is too high. Wheelbase not wide enough. Well, you've seen the three-wheeled little meter maid ladies riding around. Well, this one fell over on a turn, and when it fell over, it fell on the gas tank side. The gas cap scraped off. The fuel poured out, and it burned the meter maid beyond anything that any human that would want to live. Simple cap that all it needed was a safety lock, and the cap wouldn't have un fallen off at the fall. And you talked about this earlier, but and you've said the word design or design defect, and you mentioned that there are different ways that a product can be defective. The cap is one that you've talked about, the... Um, the tin, the five cent versus the 10 cent tin, those are design decisions. The, the manufacturer making a decision, we're going to go with the five cent versus the 10 cent, right? Right. 
And then, but what are what are the other avenues aside from design? You mentioned earlier warnings. What what's the difference between those two different types of cases? Well, there are lots of cases involving warnings, and those government has done a really good job over the last decade trying to make sure people understand the warnings that are on a device and how it's to be used. Here's step one, here's step two, here's step three. Make sure you follow the steps in order. And if you don't, don't use it. And so lots of the electrical defects where we have different contractors on the same work site, some of them using the product properly and then day laborers who may not use the product the same way. And what happens is they don't understand the training necessary to read the warnings, follow the warnings, and make sure the product is used properly. One of the problems that we find in products cases is the warnings are not proper. The warning is in the wrong location, not of the right size. It's not a strong enough warning. Uh, You can understand that you may get hurt, and people will understand that anything can hurt you, and they may go forward. But there are warnings that tell you that if you don't use this property, you're going to electrocute it, and you're going to die. You're going to look at that warning and go, oh, I could die. The warnings on medications have changed dramatically over the last decade, and we've handled a number of products cases involving pharmaceutical products where, one, the label was not proper, the warning on how to use it and how often to use it, it was not proper, or the change to sell more product caused more internal problems for humans. Uh, One of the best cases of that is involving a flush for people that have to do gastroenteral exams. Uh, Fleet Phosphate decided that it would be better to drink two bottles instead of one. Why? They wanted to sell two bottles instead of one. Two bottles of it caused liver failure, kidney failure, because of the crystals inside the chemical. And properly do it if you're going to use two bottles instead of one, which was not necessary, you literally had to flush out your body with a gallon of water. The product could be used safely if you knew you had to drink a gallon of water. Uh, We've had pharmaceutical companies and pharmacies give out the wrong medication. Have you ever looked at pills and you say, well, this came from the pharmacy. I'm going to take the white pill because they told me to take four. And you find out that it was only supposed to be one of a different drug altogether, different color, uh, involved in a pain medication where the bag that had the pain medication in a hospital looked just like the bag that was 100 times stronger. There was no difference in the shape, color, or size of the bag. The nurse took out the wrong bag. Human error is always involved in product defects. Client went into cardiac arrest immediately upon receiving the liquid because it was 100 times stronger than was necessary. So human error is always a factor in these product cases. From a lawyer's standpoint, it's understanding what could have happened here. Let me secure the product. Let me make sure no one moves this product or changes it because that's when the case goes away. I was about to ask you, I mean, it sounds like whether it's a label uh, of a prescription bottle or a bag at a hospital or a automobile that you think may have 
failed or, or been defective, what's your first advice to a person who thinks they're injured or a lawyer who thinks that that may be the culprit of why their potential client is injured? Whatever it is that failed or whatever it is that may have been involved, you secure it in a location where no one can touch it, where the elements cannot change it in any way. No one else can have their hands on it. We have a warehouse at our law firm where we store automobiles and defective products. The moment we find out about a a problem, we grab it and we take it to the warehouse and we secure it. And grabbing it can mean more than grabbing it. Sometimes for us, it's buying it or... (laughs) We've had to do that. We've bought vehicles from people that have been hurt by vehicles and the owners didn't want to sell it and you convince them that we'll buy this from you because otherwise you can never prove your case. So obviously you have to have an injury that's worth enough money to buy a car. Uh, We have bicycles stored where various parts of a bike have failed. What happens, which is very, very sad, is that people are injured, their family finds the broken box or the broken product, and they toss it. They come to see us and they say, well, this is what it looked like and this is what happened. That's not a case. 99.9% of the time, if you don't have the product, you have no case. You must be able to prove the defect. You can't say it failed and then I threw it away. Can you take the extra step and try and explain to people why the actual product is important? People may be listening and thinking, well, what's the big deal? You can go find another product that was similar to it? Or can't we just go to the store and and find something that may have been sold at the same time? But when we're talking about proving our case in a courtroom, not just in the common perceptions of people, why does it make a difference that you secure the actual product or label if you can? Let me answer the question differently than you may want. Okay. Uh, You can win a case when you don't have the product if the product is consistently manufactured the same defective way. So you can go buy a similar product and say, look, here's the defect, this is what happened. But invariably experts will say, this particular product that caused this injury didn't have that. And you as an injured person must prove it. You as a lawyer must be able to show on this product, here's the defect right here, and this is why it failed. In our heating case, the heater was a molten mass of melted steel. We kept it in an office on plastic sheets. And you're thinking to yourself, there's no way that I can prove that this heater is defective. But the original heater was still intact. And you know how a product works. And you understand that a heater is supposed to have an automatic shutoff when it gets too hot. And you can go through a molten mass and find the defect. What did we do? We thought we found the defect with our expert's help, not our help. And then we bought another one. Same exact heater. Cost a lot of money. Found the defective three-penny piece of tin and said, that's what happened. And so having the product is very, very important. Sometimes you can't do it. Uh, We've had hand grenades explode. Military people from the Navy. And you're going, the hand grenades explode. How are you going to prove it? But when you find that they use a firing mechanism in hand grenades, again, made of tin, a critical part of a hand grenade 
made of a penny tin instead of something stronger. And it was a little circle, and the firing pin had to hit that tin before it would go off. Well, guess what? The firing pin went off when the hand grenade was inside the gun because the metal was too thin, too cheap, and it exploded the gun and blew off a hand. Uh, trying to prove that only can happen if you have pieces of the original product, in this case, a film of the actual device blowing up in a controlled setting and then b getting other hand grenades and doing a deep dive. Wow. The, um, talking about the proof of a case, you've, of the cases you've handled, some have been outside of Virginia. You know, the Chinese drywall was litigated, if I remember, New Orleans, Florida, Florida here, Virginia. Mississippi. And uh, the BP case was all in New Orleans, at least in the federal court in New Orleans. Um, if somebody is bringing a, or wants to bring a case for a product defect in Virginia, how does that law, in your experience, compare in terms of proving your case? Virginia has pretty good warranty law. Is this device working the way it was intended? Did it do what it was intended to do? Virginia has pretty good warranty law. Many other states have a strict liability law, which is similar to what was the maritime law that was used in the BP case. When you're at sea, you don't have to really prove the defect. You must prove that the product didn't work the way it was intended. So if you happen to be working on a device that snaps in half because of pressure, that's not the, what's supposed to happen. You don't have to prove that it was made with cheap metal and it shouldn't have broken. You just have to prove that it broke. So strict liability law, which applies in other states, not in Virginia, you don't have to prove the defect. You have to prove that it didn't work the way it was intended. In Virginia, you have to show that it did not work properly. And that's through the warranty claims, or if it's not strict liability, it's negligence. But what's the difference between somebody, a negligence products liability case and a strict, strict liability case? Well, a strict liability case, the product failed, not supposed to fail when you're using it. Yeah. They lose. Defendants lose. We've had, uh, you know, so many people use lawnmowers. And gassing up a lawnmower is not an easy thing. And people oftentimes will cut their lawn, run out of gas. They'll walk over with their gas can with a lawnmower that's been running for 45 minutes and try to get the gas in the hole. And they fail. Should the lawnmower explode, burning someone badly because they were foolish enough to try to fill up a gas when they weren't finished cutting their lawn? Product manufacturers have to design with humans in mind. Yes, some humans are just too foolish to get out of the way. But there's a certain way that people use these devices, like a lawnmower. And you know they're going to try to fill the gas when they run out of gas because their lawn's too big. Well, at least make sure, one, there's a warning, or two, there's a way to do it safely so that if you pour the gas on the tank, it's not going to explode. That's happened. More than a few of those lawnmower cases. Saws. They have safety guards. Some of the saws make made with safety guards that are just easily removable. 
you know what? If you have the safety guard removed, you can cut the wood four times faster. But the safety guard's there for a reason. It's to keep you from forgetting to move your hand. If it gets in end of a tree and it lands on your leg, the safety guard snaps into place to keep you from cutting your leg off. You don't design a safety guard on a mechanical piece of equipment so that it's so easy to remove because people will do it. So you must design products with the idea that humans are likely to use it in all kinds of different ways. They're not going to be a lawnmower engineer going to cut their lawn. It's going to be Joe Q. Public grabbing a saw, saying, oh, if I take off this guard, I can do this faster. It's easier. It's lighter. And so you have to build in the safety devices with the idea that I have to protect humans from themselves because human nature causes problems. And product manufacturers who think about it and should think about it, and the law requires them to think about it, we must build these safety devices so that they are not removable, that people will use them, and the product can be used with them. Dozens of saw cases, dozens of ladder cases for the same problem. Looked at the ladders lately in a store. There's 37 labels telling people. And what's happened is that the label war has gotten to be foolish. Don't iron your shirt while wearing. Okay? I don't need that. <laughs> All right? But there's, a, there, there's but, labels. Yeah. And so labels can't be ridiculous. And some of the defendants who have found themselves to be defendants have gone to a point where the labels are no longer meaningful. And that you over-label, you overwarn, right. right? Yeah, people go, oh yeah, well, sure. And, you, and it, it loses the importance of the word warning if you're warning about everything that could possibly go wrong. Right, every pill is not going to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> and if you know that every pill is going to kill you, uh, you kind of go, yeah, I know every pill is going to kill me. But there are certain pills that are going to really kill you. Yeah. And they need warnings to understand it. Everyone, every pill has a bottle that says don't drink with alcohol. But there are certain pills when mixed with alcohol are almost definitely fatal because of the mixture of the chemicals. And that becomes a problem. It's got to be a meaningful label. So we've had lots of label cases, and there's engineers who specialize in giving proper warnings. What is it supposed to look like? Is it supposed to be red? Is it supposed to be yellow? Is it supposed to be near the steering wheel? Is it supposed to be at the danger end? Is it supposed to be at the handle end? Those are all real concepts in the law. And engineers and lawyers fight over that all the time. You, and that brings up sort of an earlier topic that we were talking about, which is the expense of proving or handling these cases. And, and it, it can be a slippery slope for a lawyer um, or for a person who's seeking a lawyer, doesn't know, you know, what am I getting myself into? How, how, how far is this going to go in terms of costs? Because you have, you may need an engineer for the design, then an engineer for the label, and then other experts. Talk about... Well, there's two parts of that, really. Yeah. First, there's the client who says, well, I can't spend $25,000 proving my case. That's why we work on a contingency fee. We take cases, we work on cases for three or four or five months, and you may discover that it's not a good case. 
you may have spent ten or twenty thousand dollars understanding this is not a defective product case and that money is gone clients can't afford that that's why we get hired on a contingency fee we're going to spend that money and we're going to tell you at the end of our three or four months six month analysis whether we're willing to spend another fifty to a hundred thousand dollars to prove your case and we're going to keep your case uh, that's clients should not spend that money that's why there's a contingency fee there's lawyers who take these cases and say well it failed it's clearly defective but they don't understand that a defendant may bring in five experts for $300,000. And you've got to have a defective expert for this label, for the saw itself, the design of the saw, the design of the cutting device. All of those have different types of experts, and it gets to be very expensive. I've seen lawyers who try to say, well, I'll get this really good expert who can talk about it all. We had one of those in the BP case. We spent a million dollars on an expert, one million dollars on an expert. And he wanted to talk about everything. He was going to talk about oil drilling design, process safety, cement design. And it got to the point where we couldn't convince him to just pick this one area where we hired you for. Yeah. And we didn't use him. He never testified the case. Master of none. Master of none. And so lawyers were trying to save money, try to cobble everything into one expert. Nope. Sometimes you have to have three or four different experts on the design. What caused the explosion? What caused the injury? Those are all different causation issues, and different experts have different expertise on doing that. Where do you find them? You know, somebody coming in and they said, wow, I think I have a defective airbag. Um, I've never handled a defective airbag case. I need an expert. Now well, what? I guess I have an easier job of doing that than you do because I've been around for 42 years litigating these cases. Yeah. So I have lawyer friends in all over every state. And the trial lawyers is a national organization, the state organization. You reach out to everybody. Hey, I have a defective airbag case involving a Takata airbag. I have a saw made by XYZ. Uh, has anyone seen one of these cases? Oh, yeah, expert Joe Blow in Tennessee was great. And oftentimes, almost always, I will hire two experts for the exact same point. A lawyer calls me and tells me he's a great expert. Typically, I call him and say he's a great expert. I don't know the relationship. I need to see my eyes on the expert, and then i got to test him. Yeah. I've got to push him where he doesn't want to be pushed to see how we'll do in front of a jury, see how we'll do in a deposition. And I may find out that he's a really, really smart person and could not convince a five-year-old to wear pajamas before they go to bed. Just not a good expert to testify. You don't prepare cases for settlement. You prepare cases for trial. And so experts have to be able to communicate. So you have these scientists who are brilliant, but they can't talk like humans. And so finding the right mix of uh, proper human nature, compassion, understanding, and the ability to explain like a professor, where a jury will go, wow, I wish I had that person as a professor. That's the kind of expert I'm looking for. And sometimes, we just had a maritime case last year, we had a 40 years experience tug captain, knew everything about tug captain you could ever know. 
But when you quizzed him and tested him under the theories of the case in particular, he got wishy-washy and soft. Didn't quite understand where I was headed in this case. And I had to abandon him, but I had another expert who did a really good job. So that happens often. You find an expert who everyone has recommended. Now they're a little long at the tooth. They're not as persuasive as they used to be. They're a little, they're no longer professorial looking, but they look like a old man who doesn't know what he's talking about. You have to make that judgment call as a lawyer. Yeah, thank you for your help. I appreciate you educating me, but I'm going to use somebody else in the courtroom. What tips do you have for a lawyer that maybe is not handled a products liability case in screening a new case or handling a new case? I'm going to assume that a client has come into a lawyer's office and said, I've been hurt, and I think it happened when I was using this product or it did happen using this product. The first tip for a lawyer is, where's the product? Let's go secure it. Let's put it in a place where it can't be touched. Maybe it's the person who's coming to visit the lawyer's garage but it needs to be put in a secure place where no one else can touch it. It can't be outdoors. It has to be where we talk about chain of custody. No one else can mess with it because the defendants will say, look, look at its condition. It got changed. We don't know what it looked like on the day it happened. So it has to be secured. The next best advice is I haven't done a products case or I haven't done very many cases. I've never done a, this one of these products. Pick up the phone. Call Kevin Beniazin, call Jeffrey, call a lawyer who has handled one of these cases and say, look, I have this. What do you think? I've got an expert who can come look at it. I can do this or that or the other. Don't turn it away because you don't do it. Secure it because the client needs it secured. And then pick up the phone and find someone or go on the Internet. What lawyers handled this type of case? Whatever the product is. And then ask questions. Find out if there's other lawyers. Don't just pick the first one you get, but ask questions. I tell lawyers all the time, pick up the phone and call me. It takes 10, 15 minutes out of my life. I don't care. I'll answer all your questions. I'll tell you what I think. I'll tell you what you should do. I'll tell you experts if you need them. Keep the case if you think you can handle it. That's okay, but understand this in advance. Products case is going to cost you $50,000, $100,000 if it's a big injury and a big product. So understand that you're willing to invest that for the client. Otherwise, partner up with a lawyer, a law firm, and say, will you all help me do this? Lawyers will do that. We'll do that. We do it all the time. I would say at least a third of our products liability cases came from other lawyers who have asked for help. And when they realize, even after the help, I still want you to help in the case, we take over. And we do those things. But it's okay if you want to keep the case, but understand what it means. Read about it. Study it. Secure the product first. Make sure that no one touches it. If it's not too expensive, buy a similar product so that you understand what broke, what caused the injury. That's what I would do if I have a lawyer looking at a product's case for the first time. You know, these products cases often cause catastrophic injury for a person who can't actually seek the counsel themselves and it falls on somebody else. What advice do you have for that person whose family member or friend or someone they loved about or love they think has suffered an injury as a result of a product? You know, we start off with the same advice, secure the product. Yeah. And then secondly, who saw this? Anyone who is a witness, anyone who knows anything about the purchase of the product, the sales receipt, or witnessed the incident, 
get their information as quickly as possible. Memories fade. Important details that may not seem important at the time become incredibly important nine months later. And so understanding what kinds of questions to ask, getting names, addresses, phone numbers, taking photographs of the scene, taking photographs of the product at the scene, so that everybody can understand. That's why you see police officers at homicide investigations. They photograph everything because you never know what detail fact may be the cornerstone to a case. So you take it all, you get everything, and then you decide where it fits. And so that's the most important thing, the product, the photographs, the statements, the witnesses, and anything that may affect the purchase of the product or the use of the product at the time that it happened. Okay. That helps. That helps. Thank you very much. Um, For those of you who are listening, if you are a uh, person who's looking to hire a products liability lawyer, a lawyer that's looking to get into this practice, um, what Jeffrey's saying he means. Um, I've seen him get on the phone with random folks who got his name from somebody, from somebody, from somebody, and he'll take the time to talk to you and to give you answers to your questions and to help you solve your problems. So I highly encourage you all to do it. Thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of the Bright Canner Podcast, and we'll see you next time.